Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in and listening. We are going to do something a little bit different today. I'm excited about today's episode. We are actually going to engage directly with another podcast. Um, But before that, let me just give you a small ministry update. We've been uh, pretty busy here at Theology and Apologetics. I've just returned from a trip to Israel. Uh, We were taking a tour from the Calvary Chapel churches in the UK over to Israel, and that's just been a real blessing, but obviously it's kept me very busy. I'm still working on my PhD which is going to be related to a lot of the stuff we will be talking about on today's podcast. The trip to Finland went very well. I thank you all for any who were praying for me for that event. And as always, we have a number of articles and podcasts being released. So please make sure you're subscribed and follow us on the social media accounts to make sure that you don't miss anything uh, that we post or any new articles. Right, let's get into the study today. So what we are actually going to do today is engage with a podcast called the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. And we are looking at the issues of Israel, Zionism, dispensationalism and biblical prophecy today. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast is uh, a podcast put out by Premier Christian Radio. It is hosted by um, someone called Justin Briley. Uh, He is more commonly known for his podcast Unbelievable, which is a leading UK apologetic show where he gets in usually atheists and Christians for dialogue and debate about big questions of life and religion. It's a very good show. And the Ask N.T. Wright Uh, Anything podcast is Justin sitting down with with leading New Testament scholar N.T. Wright where they discuss all manner of topics. We'll explain a little more as we go. Now, of course, many of us who are self-confessed Bible geeks would admit we are quite jealous of Justin for this. It's a great opportunity to be able to pick the brains of a New Testament scholar and I'm sure he enjoys that. So it's going to be fun to engage with some of the material we have today. Now, the episode that we are interacting with particularly, I believe it's just sort of maybe the second to last episode that was released on that podcast it's to do with the subject of Israel and Zionism and surrounding issues that come from that now Tom Wright or N.T. Wright as as he's known in academic circles he is a massive figure in New Testament scholarship both at the academic and the lay level Um, some of his big books um, Resurrection and the Son of God Paul and the Faithfulness of God the man just writes so 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 much these volumes are massive but he also has works at a popular level his for everyone commentary series books like surprised by joy and surprised by hope um, have made a huge impact in the christian world Now, Tom Wright is not unknown to theological controversy. Uh, His views on justification, on the atonement, on the new perspective on Paul have at times caused some controversy which he has addressed and is sort of ongoing. He is the former Bishop of Durham and I believe he's recently been appointed as the Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. He is someone who admits that he does his morning devotions in Hebrew and Greek. (laughs) So he's quite a formidable character in New Testament studies. Now, I don't want this podcast to appear like I'm criticising or opposing Tom in a very confrontational way. I don't like that sort of debate. However, as my own doctoral work is related to the subject of Zionism and supersessionism, and I do broadly come from a dispensational background, uh, there are a number of things I'd like to engage with and just offer some clarification and a few comments on some things that were said. 
Now, as you listen to the Ask NT Write podcast, you'll get the impression that Tom loves uh, engaging and, and discussing Scripture, and I share that view, obviously, with him. I love to speak about the Bible and the Word of God, and it's really in this spirit that I want to conduct this podcast. So let me just share with you the format of how it works. So the format of the Ask NT Write podcast is that Justin Briley will sit down. He has questions from listeners, and they're obviously sort of categorised by topic. He will then ask Tom and they will go from there and it's a fairly fairly easy format to pick up on. Now for us to engage with it though, rather than me playing hundreds of clips of Tom's answers, which would really in the end just be me repeating the entire podcast, I will read the questions and then I will summarise the answers and then try and offer some comment as we go. Now of course the format is quite brief on a podcast like this so I will really intersperse some of my answers with the the quotations from from N.T. Wright's published works that will give you some of the background to the things that he is actually uh, saying here because without without the background it's it's easy to misunderstand and some of this material may get a little technical if you're excited about that like I am then amen and if not it will be a good to to maybe become familiar with some of these concepts so let's just jump straight in. So the first question was this. Can you speak to the role that modern Israel, Holy Land, has in eschatology today? So can you speak to the role that modern Israel or the Holy Land has in eschatology today? Now in Tom's answer, he stated that the church has become very, the Western church has become very uh, Western focused and lost the role that geography has to play in biblical interpretation. He then says that this was then thrust back upon the church after 1948, which was the establishment of the modern state of Israel. And then he says, according to some interpretations, the return of the Jews to the Holy Land was prophesied. I believe here he's really sort of referring to the rise of premillennial dispensationalism in the sort of 19th. 19th century and it's it's peak in the in the 20th century here but he goes on with his answer where it gets more specific he starts here it is now clear that in the new testament with jesus and the church the whole world is now god's holy land romans 8 talks about the inheritance of god's people which is the renewed creation not heaven not one particular piece of turf in the middle east that's a quote, that's a direct quote from Tom's answer to Justin's question. Now, a few things we could say about this. Now, I'm not convinced that it is at all clear that the whole world is now God's holy land in that unique way. Now, what we need to remember here as we enter into this discussion that Tom Wright is, he's an Anglican, and he very much follows in the, the sort of amillennial tradition that is dominant in Anglicanism these days. And has been really well for a long time. And what he is suggesting here, and although it may sound uh, very appealing and it sort of has quite a Christological focus, it is actually what we would call a clear example of territorial supersessionism. Supersessionism, the academic word for replacement theolo theology. One category of this is called territorial supersessionism, and it's obviously referring to the issue of the land. Now, I know that Tom would vigorously deny the charge of supersessionism. We'll deal with the language and the the, uh, the identifications, it comes up again in a later question. But what you have to understand is that this theology, this sort of spiritualized transference that he explains in this answer, rests on a hermeneutic that places interpretive priority on the New Testament and then allegorically sees all the promises spiritually fulfilled in Jesus. 
You see what see what he's done there. That's why he can say that the Holy Land is now the world. All of these promises that we find in the Old Testament, they're spiritually fulfilled in Jesus. Now, firstly, I believe this destroys the principle of authorial intent. And secondly, I, I don't believe it works because it just simply cannot be applied consistently. Now listen to Tom explain this in more detail. I'm going to quote here from his book, Jesus and the Victory of God. He says this, quote, Jesus did not come to rehabilitate the symbol of the Holy Land, but to subsume it within a different fulfilment of the kingdom, which would embrace the whole creation. Jesus spent his whole ministry redefining what the kingdom meant. He refused to give up the symbolic language of the kingdom, but filled it with such new content that he powerfully subverted Jewish expectations. Jesus spent his whole ministry redefining what the kingdom meant. Elsewhere in other published works, Tom says this. He says that Jesus was, quote, reconstituting Israel around himself and reinterpreting Israel's eschatological hope and reusing Israel's prophetic heritage and retelling its story. You may notice the, the sort of uh, the build-up of re-words. The such re-language, I believe, introduces a radical discontinuity in God's plans. And it seems a real far cry from Paul's message in Romans 15.8. Let me read that to you. Romans 15.8, the Apostle Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. We see, I believe it's quite clear here that Jesus did not come to redefine or reinterpret in such a way that the original promises are actually unrecognisable, but he came to confirm, in fact, bring to fruition the promises that we find there. Now, this is not unique to Tom Wright. Uh, all supersessionists actually do this. Gary Burge, a le leading American scholar, he says this, Jesus spiritualises the land and that Jesus and his followers reinterpreted the promises of the kingdom. Ultimately, then, this means that all the promises that relate to Israel, the people, the nation, they are all universalised under the redefined symbolism of the kingdom, which is now presented as a homogenous spiritual entity. And as scholar Barry Horner has rightly noted in his book Future Israel, he says, quote, Here is an attempt to linguistically adorn what in reality is the offensive face of supersessionism. And I have to admit, I agree with Horner uh, exactly there. I do believe that is what is happening here. An attempt to linguistically adorn the offensive face of supersessionism. And that's one of the issues why I'm engaging with this issue, because th there is a very offensive face to supersessionism. Now, we find it, uh, you can find it all scattered throughout church history in many many tragic ways but we find it uh, very much alive and well today in the more extreme end of what we have classed the new supersessionist writings these are the movement often clarified as christian palestinianism this is a, a strand of supersessionism that is mixed with uh, palestinian nationalism the the palestinian narrative uh, a very hard anti-zionism and uh, the theology is very much liberation theology. You may have heard of the conferences Christ at the Checkpoint um, put on by Bethlehem Bible College and many of the people you see speaking from from this movement and at that conference they fall back on the writings of N.T. Wright for their theological support in order to come up with an anti-Israel narrative. So these things do have a, a very serious reason why we're wanting to engage with them. However, I believe just simply the hermeneutical methodology that we've just talked about above is actually very questionable just standing to stand alone. You see, now non-supersessionists like myself would agree that 
you know, within the understanding of progressive revelation, of course there are ways in which the New Testament sheds unknown light on many areas. Now we could give examples, so let's give give a few. The Christological fulfillments of the, the, the Hebrew feasts. That's a good example. You know, Christ as the Passover, Christ as the first fruits. We're familiar with that sort of typology, if we can call it that. Another thing that the New Testament sheds light on is the annulling of stipulations from the Mosaic legislation. The New Testament also fills in many theological details that are only hinted at in the Old Testament. Things like heaven and hell and individual soteriology. The New Testament provides us many details expanding on what we have in the Old Testament. Now, here's the point, though. Recognising that there are points of continuity and discontinuity between Old and New Testaments is not the same as using the New Testament to radically reinterpret the teachings of the Old. And that's what, I, what we need to understand here. We have to ask this question, where is the hermeneutical principle clearly taught that what the Old Testament authors intended through a specific text is only valid if it is reiterated in the New Testament? Now, if this is the standard, it means that the Old Testament cannot really provide a fixed reference point for itself. And that's a problem. Scholar Walter Kaiser, he correctly asked this question when examining this interpretive method. He says, why would a rule be imposed on the revelation of God that demands that the Old Testament passages may not become the basis for giving primary direction on any doctrines or truths that have relevancy for New Testament times? This is only to argue for a canon within a canon. And again, I thoroughly uh, agree with what he's saying here. Now, on the one hand, yes, there is a new Christological focus of the New Testament authors. No one's denying that. And surely, yes, they use the Old Testament passages in a variety of different ways, but it has not been proven that the New Testament authors believe themselves to be reinterpreting and thus nullifying the original authorial intent of the Old Testament writers. A much more sort of historically sensitive study would reveal that the New Testament develops Old Testament teaching as divine history progresses, but the teaching of the Old Testament is not lost in the process. That's what we need to understand. Now this approach obviously is, I believe, is much more uh, preferable because firstly, one, it recognises the authority of the New Testament to revoke or add reference to the Old. And in the same way, it allows the Old Testament texts to retain their integrity as revelation by paying attention to the original intent of the authors. So you maintain authorial intent and you maintain the authority of the Old Testament. So that is a much more historically sensitive and I believe more consistent hermeneutic to apply than having this reinterpretation, redefining uh, New Testament over the Old Testament sort of narrative that we see in supersessionist writings. And secondly, I just don't believe that the supersessionist interpretation here can actually be consistently applied. And what do I mean by that? Well, firstly, what about all the passages that show the New Testament authors interpreting the Old Testament promises in a very straightforward manner, with absolutely no reinterpretation? Um, take the Old Testament promises about the Messiah, that he would be heir to King David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, that a messenger would prepare the way for him, Isaiah chapter 40 that he would be betrayed, Zechariah 11, that he would be crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53, the hands, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, Zechariah 12.10, and that he would be resurrected, Psalm 16. You see, all of these things were, were not reinterpreted. They were actually taken in a very straightforward manner by the New Testament authors in their fulfilment. Now, the question we have to ask is why, whenever we see this reinterpretation happening, is it only being applied when it comes to the land and the people? That should raise some, some red flags as we move forward into this discussion. 
Now, Tom goes on in his answer to Justin's question, and he uses Psalm chapter 2 to universalize the specific land promise of the Abrahamic covenant. He says that the early Christians saw this fulfilled in Jesus. They didn't have this attitude by saying it's all fulfilled in Jesus. Oh, by the way, there's still a little bit of holy land left over there. The idea that there is still one strip of land where it is all going to happen is, quote, a major theological category mistake. So that's the remainder of Tom Wright's answer there. So we've seen him quote two scriptures in uh, justification for his universalizing the, the promises in the covenants. He used Romans 8 in the first part of the answer, and he used Psalm 2. Now I've gone through and shown you the underlying hermeneutic because you need to understand that's what's happening. But these two verses, I believe, just do not support the, the contention that Tom is making here. Now, Romans 8 is speaking of a day when the whole creation will be redeemed. We will be living in a redeemed creation in redeemed bodies, and this is a much more accurate um, understanding of, of the eternal state or the, the afterlife or heaven, as you want to call it, than the often given platonic notion of sort of heavenly bodies floating around in some ethereal state. Now, I would agree with Tom, and I, I, I like his focus on the new creation, but my question is, I don't see how that promise in Romans 8 somehow gives warrant to state that the specific covenantal promises to the Jewish people concerning a specific patch of land are revoked. It just does not say that. It's, he's reading too much into that and he's looking at the, you know, the new creation and the new heavens rather than the situation that we have today. And again, it's a similar thing with Psalm chapter 2. Many of you will be familiar with Psalm chapter 2. This is a royal psalm and it emphasises God's sovereignty in history and his sovereignty over the plans of the nations. But again, we must ask the question, why does the acknowledgement of God's universal kingship and sovereignty, why, can that, can, why cannot that be held simultaneously with the specific promises over a piece of land? Tom never explains why these things cannot be held simultaneously. He just assumes that because the universal is true, the particular cannot be. But because the particular is what we see emphasised in Scripture, this now needs to be changed, and he does that, like, like we've explained, through this reinterpretation hermeneutic. Now, I don't believe that any reader would come to Psalm 2 or Romans 8 and come away with the conclusion that the land promises from the Abrahamic covenant are thus being universalised. The only way I can see that you would come to that is if you have a preconceived systematic that you are reading these scriptures through, and I believe that that is what is happening in this situation here. Now let's just look at one more little quote. Tom says, one tiny strip of land where it is all going to happen. He says, there's, this, there's not this one tiny strip of land, and that is a major theological category mistake. Let's just be frank here. It really depends on what you mean here. I don't think anyone is claiming that it's all going to happen there. The, the biblical scope um, obviously does incorporate the, the whole world in prophecy and future prophecy. But let's also be honest. Surely much of it did happen there. And why do we have to rule out that much of it still will happen there? The answer is we don't, and there's no scriptural warrant for us believing that. And this, this sort of universalised land system that we have in place here does not give us that answer. So I, so I believe that as we move into this discussion now, notice the hermeneutic that's going on here. This is the underlying hermeneutic of supersessionism. And I don't believe the scriptural warrants that we've looked at are justified, but let's move on to the next part of Tom's answer. He goes on and he says this, the use of Israeli museum 
uh, of verses that speak of return from exile being used in fulfillment of Jews returning after 1948. Now, what he's referring to is if you go to the Israeli Museum today, you can see pictures of you know ships with uh, bringing Jewish refugees back to the land post Holocaust, post the war period, uh, 1948 and onwards. And often you'll find these. Um, with a scripture from from usually the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and uh, about bringing the, the exiles home and he's saying here that he has a problem with using these verses and applying them to the 1948 post 1948 return now this is tricky and I agree with him in some ways however I don't agree that he rules out any significance to that it seems but I, I wouldn't go that far but I would caution that, that a bit more scrutiny is needed because what we do find is that even among many groups who would be classed broadly as Christian Zionists um, they do use the prophecies uh, I believe in a little a little bit loosely because often these prophecies of, of the final return are speaking of Israel coming back and never being uprooted again, being a blessing. And, and it's sort of these are millennium kingdom uh, texts that are referring to the time of blessing and national salvation of Israel. We'll touch on that a little bit as we go. Not necessarily to the return in unbelief uh, that we see in 19, post-1948. So there are some issues with this statement, but we won't go into them. He, he doesn't address it anymore, so we'll stick with what Tom has raised here. Now the next question that Justin brings is this. He says, how would you respond to the dispensationalist idea that there is a sharp separation between Israel and the church and that promises like a rebuilt temple still await fulfillment and were not fulfilled through Jesus' death, burial and resurrection and a creation of a new people of God, i.e. the church? There's a big question there. There's a lot in that. Now, let me read to you Tom's answer. I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing it slightly, but it, but it is absolutely true to the context. He says, Tom says this, you have to scrub out several pieces of Paul, of John and of Matthew that all say that all this stuff reached its climax with Jesus and Jesus himself is the real temple. You'd have to erase Paul saying that all the promises find their yes in him, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And when John says, out of you shall flow living waters, John is saying the temple promise of Ezekiel is fulfilled in the spirit. He says that Western Christians haven't spotted much of the temple resonance of so much of the New Testament. And he says there is no room for saying, let's build a new temple. Now, there's a lot uh, to engage with here, so let's answer a few things. Firstly, it may be helpful if I just give a, a little bit of clarification over the distinction between Israel and the church that we find in dispensationalism. Now, when you see this described, usually by people who are critiquing, um, they present it that there is such a, a, a division between the church and Israel, you could draw sort of two separate circles and there's no overlap in them at all. The two never meet. One is the earthly people, one is the heavenly people. God stopped the clock on Israel, he started the church. When the church is gone, he restarts the clock on Israel. Now, I don't like uh, that clarification of dispensationalism. You may find that in the very early dispensational tradition when uh, Sperry Chafer and, and Schofield were writing, but uh, dispensationalism is not a static tradition. It has obviously been revised many times and refined as it's gone. Um, the later generations with Rari and, and Pentecost obviously corrected a lot of that language. And, and even today with progressive dispensationalism like Daryl Block and Robert Saucy, you'll find that distinction. Uh, we just don't talk like that anymore. Now, what is uh, a much more accurate view is that we believe that there is Israel and there is the church and there is 
uh, there are Israel and Gentiles rather, and then there is the church which consists of Jewish and Gentile believers. But you can be part of the church and also be part of Israel. So you don't get these two separate circles that never meet. There is definitely some overlap there. We do, be, we do believe that God is still working with Israel and the church simultaneously. There are definitely not two ways of salvation. This dual covenant theology is is, is heresy, and we, we don't hold to that. There is one large redemptive meta-narrative, and the best way to think of it is, rather than kind of one or two peoples of God, is to think as one redemptive narrative with two sides, like one coin with both the heads and the tails, Jews and Gentiles, and these things are, are moving um, progressively through, through the history of redemption. Now, all these future promises, now notice, let's just get back to what Tom's saying here. Notice he doesn't deny that there are very clearly future promises that seem to indicate uh, the future for Israel and the temple. He just reinterprets them, and it, it's all about how we see their fulfillment being recorded in the New Testament. He says that all of these promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. And again, this is the method at the heart of Wright's supersessionism. Uh, we'll look at it a little bit more as we go through some of the other answers. Now, he uses 2 Corinthians 1.20, which, which reads like this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And it, remember, he, he quoted that verse and said we'd have to deny that if we were to believe in a, a future for Israel or a future for the temple. Now, my immediate question with this he uses this verse, he assumes that all the future promises are now spiritually fulfilled in Jesus as the temple. And he says that many Western Christians have missed this sort of temple motif throughout Scripture. Uh, maybe many have, but I, I would actually say that the study of typology, particularly temple typology, has actually been very well covered by those from a futurist tradition, particularly many of the old brethren writers. Uh, temple motifs are very much uh, in the writings of people who hold to a future for Israel. And we would definitely agree. Uh, the temple place has always been described as where heaven meets earth, the dwelling place of God. We see this with the tabernacle. We we see this with the temple, we see this with the incarnation, and in that sense Jesus is the temple, that's why he can speak of his body as the temple. And more so, we also see it with the church, the church is described as the temple. We don't deny any of those things, yet it is a leap to then come to the conclusion, I believe to say like Tom does, that there's no room for saying let's build a new temple. The only way there'd be room for that is, it, is if that is what the scriptures seem to indicate. And there is some good scripture that, that we could make a good argument for that. But what Tom does is he takes all of the promises and he places them into Jesus. Again, we need to notice something very telling here. When he does this, he seems to place them all into the first advent of Jesus. All the promises find their yes in the death, burial and resurrection of Christ is the way this seems to be implied. So that post the resurrection, all of these promises are universalized and spiritually fulfilled in him. You see how this method works and this gives him a very nice way to do away with any sort of future land and temple promises. But I would say, what, why do they have to all find their, their yes in the first advent of Jesus Christ? What about all the promises that will find their yes in him at the second advent? And it's many of these, but there are actually more written about the second advent, I believe, than there is the first advent. 
Many of these, which seem to include these temple promises, these land promises, these Davidic throne promises, these promises that one day he'll rule from Zion, etc., and all these sorts of promises, um, they, they will find their yes, and we can we can talk about them like they've already happened because that's the, the the strength of authority that the Bible has. But ultimately, we know they'll find their ultimate conclusion with the second advent. So I don't believe that that verse is really doing anything to make his case stronger. It seems like a stretch to use these verses to support a completely allegorical spiritual fulfilment of all the promises. And to be frank, it doesn't really seem to make sense of all the temple scriptures anyway. If you take a chapter like Ezekiel 40 to 48, so eight chapters here of text. Now, Tom says that all of these are spiritually fulfilled uh, in Jesus. And, and this is explained in John's gospel with the passages about living waters. And it sounds quite appealing, yet when we look at the text in Ezekiel, we are given so many details. We're given details of the walls of the city, of the gates, the dimensions, the temple chambers, the altar, the feasts, the new law, post-Mosaic legislation, the priests' quarters, and the division of the land. Very specific details, and all of these details seem to be, quite frankly, pointless and actually incorrect if the fulfilment is just a universalized location through Christ. So it, it really doesn't do justice to, to the scope of temple uh, narrative that we find in the scriptures. And what about in the New Testament? Second Thessalonians. Let me read to you the first couple of verses of this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So very clearly an eschatological focus on these verses. Paul continues, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now there is an eschatological context to this text, you, it's just undeniable, and it talks about the man of sin, this major character in Old Testament and New Testament prophecy, the man of lawlessness, and he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now surely if the temple of God is just referring as a, in a spiritual sense to Jesus, it wouldn't be saying that the man of lawlessness takes his uh, place spiritually in Jesus. It, it just doesn't make sense. So you're much better to keep this as a distinct future reality. It's something with the, the supersessionist attempt to deal with these prophecies just doesn't fit. Now, also, let's be very clear about this. We are not calling on the church to be involved with the building of a new temple. Uh, and there may be some sort of radical end of the Zionist movement that maybe make that mistake. I don't believe that's what we need to be doing at all. This will be done by the Jewish people, I believe, who obviously have not accepted the final sacrifice of Christ at this stage in their history. A future temple, how it is built, is really besides the point at this stage. We, we can speculate about that, but that's all we're doing. But there is good scriptural warrant for a belief in some sort of future temple. Now, how that plays out, we do not know. Or even if you're unsure about that, we can surely see that to spiritualise all of these passages as being fulfilled in Jesus doesn't fit as nicely as the supersessionist would have us believe. Now, let's go to the next question. So the question is, Justin reads this question, he says, what is the role of evangelicals in the Zionist movement? And as Christians, how are we to handle Israel? 
It's a very good question. And Tom's answer, he says this, in Britain as well, there are people on the lookout for anyone who says anything critical of present government policy of Israel. Now, in response, I'd say, OK, that, that may be the case. To be honest, I don't see it too much, and I engage with this literature a lot. But what I can guarantee you is that there are many more who are overly critical of the Israeli government to the point of holding a double standard and of being guilty of demonising the Jewish state and the Jewish people. And I believe this is what we call the new anti-Semitism, anti which is in fact anti-Zionism, which is being used as a cover for anti-Semitism. And it's a very real problem in the UK. We have issues ongoing with major political parties, a rise in anti-Jewish hatred. And I believe a segment of the church where we see theological anti-Semitism is very much alive and well. That is more my concern than the very small group of people who are maybe uh, too pro-Israel, if you could say that. Now, Tom does say, he says this, he does believe that from 1940 onwards, Jewish people did need a place where they could be secure. I'm very glad to hear he believes that. He goes on then to highlight that there is a big gulf between what is evangelical in Britain and America. And it doesn't mean you have to be pro-Israel, whatever that means. That's his response. Now, we could say a few things in regard to this. Now, true, this, and Tom does say this, it's a very complex issue. It's hard to simplify and give these very quick answers for because there's so much baggage that comes with it. Um, I'm not going to spend huge amounts of time going into all the political issues here. However, there are many reasons a person can be pro-Israel. And this doesn't mean that you offer an unconditional support for every government policy that comes out of Israel. That's really just a straw man, I believe. Now, the reasons many Christians support Israel are, in fact, diverse and multifaceted. Now, admittedly, some do hold an apocalyptic eschatology that in, in sort of sees Israel as this, this major sign of the second coming. There are others who have a more nuanced approach. Their support comes from the belief in the fidelity of God's covenantal promises to the nation. Still others support Israel simply because it is a fellow democracy in a region filled with regimes that undermine freedom of religion. And many just support Israel out of compassion for the historical suffering the Jews have undergone throughout history. And many, like myself, would actually have all of those reasons in our support for Israel. There are two extremes that people fall into in, the, in this whole debate. One is a pro-Israel imbalance, and the other is a pro-Arab imbalance. And this is the sort of the, the uncritical view that Israel can do no wrong, they, they are not sensitive to the distinctions between unbelieving Israel and Israel as it's described in the future reign in the Bible. And then there are those who, who swing too far the other, other way and they accept a, a very secularist media narrative against Israel and they, they are very strongly infused with, with uh, sort of Palestinian nationalism, and that is how they Im Im interpret the scriptures. Both of these views can be wrong on either side. We're not going to go into to critiquing each of those sides right now because it's outside the scope of, of the answers that we have here, but it is a very uh, a large and complex issue. Now, let's just offer briefly a Christian response to some of these issues. Firstly, we should repudiate anti-Semitism in all its forms, whether it be secular or theological. And I believe we need to try and think of unbelieving Israel in an apostolic way. What does it say in Romans 11:28? Paul says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. He's making the argument that, yes, they haven't believed the gospel, but it was because of their hardening that the gospel actually came to the Gentiles. And we need to remember that they're still loved because of these promises that they have originally. And we need to recognize that we actually share in their spiritual blessings 
and that we have a duty of care in light of that. Romans 15:27 says this, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that's where our salvation comes from, the blessings of the Jewish covenants, they ought, it goes on in Romans 15, 27, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So there is a scriptural warrant for supporting the Jewish people uh, with material and physical blessings. We also need to be praying for their salvation. As Paul, that's a very Pauline approach to this issue. We also need to be peacemakers. Uh, and we know that the gospel is what does this. So we pray for the peace and we pray for the gospel to have impact in all the surrounding nations that are um, really wanting to destroy Israel and filled with hatred. It's you know, We need to understand the larger geopolitical context and we need to understand that to be pro-Israel does not mean that we are anti-Arab. These two things are often presented like that. That is not the situation. But as you can see, there's, there's much we could talk about here. But let's just move on to actually where Tom goes with his answer now. Now he goes on and he says this, quote, This goes back to the founding fathers, seeing themselves as a new promised people. And it was then mixed in with dispensational theology and also politics uh, later on. It's true, kind of, in some ways, what he's getting at here is, is if you read the early the documents of the early you know, settlers in, in, in America, uh, they did see themselves as sort of replaying the story of Israel as a persecuted people, finding this new land and setting up a, a, a religious country. Um, but they didn't, whether they actually identified as Israel in a replacement way is, is not actually proven. But if you want to see uh, an in-depth work on this, I'd recommend to you Samuel Goldman's recent work, God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, where he talks about this. But let, let's go on to the, to the next question in the podcast. At this point, Justin Briley uh, interjects with a statement. He says, when a scripture is taken from Old Testament, say Genesis 12, which says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He asks, is that for a different time and place and not for the new covenant? And obviously Genesis 12 is, is a popular verse in, in Christian Zionist circles. So Justin's here trying to hone him in on actual some of the real issues here. And Tom Wright says this. He says, this then forces you to read the New Testament and see what it says about the fulfilment of those promises. Now, the New Testament is very specific. Some people say you are just swapping Israel for the church. Absolutely not. Jesus himself, as Israel's Messiah, is the one in whom Israel's destiny is fulfilled. So when we say that this is all fulfilled in Jesus, that isn't over against Israel. This is how Israel's own promised destiny came to its fulfilment then those who are renewed by the Spirit, those who are Jesus' people, become renewed Israel people. Not by replacement, but by enlargement. So that's Tom's answer, and there's a lot of stuff he covers here that you may miss if you're not aware of the theological background that's going on here. And this very much brings us back to the heart of supersessionist exegetical methodology. Now, Tom says we take the Old Testament promises, the ones that Justin mentioned, say, from, from the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, and we look at how the New Testament says they have been fulfilled. And ultimately, the answer to, to Tom and, and people who share his view is that they are now fulfilled in the church, which is uh, the true Israel, a renewed Israel people, as he puts it. And Tom, you can see in his answer, he actually preempted the charge of replacement when he said, some people say you're just swapping Israel for the church. Absolutely not. He explains it's not a simple swap, but a transference from Israel to Jesus, 
who actually fulfills the promises. And then those who become believers or Jesus people are now a renewed Israel people in Christ, not by replacement, but by enlargement. And that is the way that they get to where they end up. Now, let me just say, I believe I am very sceptical of this argumentation. Now, it is true that the way Tom explains the journey there may be a little different, and it sounds a little less offensive than the, the very definite, you're done, we're replacing you sort of narrative that we, we may find in some forms of replacement theology. But regardless of how they get to the end destination, they do end up in the same place. And that is, there is no distinctive role for the nation of Israel and an erasing of any Jewish distinctives in the body of Christ. So although the journey is different, I believe the destination is the same. And this is a very suspect hermeneutic. Now, let me unpack a little bit of the theology behind what Tom is proposing here, because it's quite deep. The, the theme of the people of God takes up much of the work in Tom's writings, as particularly uh, mainly his massive work, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. He addresses uh, this concept in depth. Now let me read a representative quote for you from Tom. He says, Paul explicitly and consciously transfers blessings from Israel according to the flesh to the Messiah and thence to the church. Galatians chapters 2 to 4 argues precisely that the worldwide believing church is the true family of Abraham and that those who remain as Israel according to the flesh are in fact the theological descendants of Hagar and Ishmael with no title to the promises. Let's just explain this a bit. Supersessionists argue from verses like Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, which says this, Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And also Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And then to add on one more scripture that wasn't mentioned in Tom's quote, but is equally mentioned elsewhere in his works, and it's one that is often used, Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 13, where it says, Remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, uh, you, you were um, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. But now it says in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Some of you will be familiar with that verse. Um, so using these verses, they then argue that there is now a universalized people of God, the children of Abraham, the church which is now renewed and enlarged Israel. Now, we, we won't do an in-depth exegesis uh, for time. This podcast will be too long if we were to do that. But I think let's just engage with some of these use of these verses a little bit. Too much is being made of the Galatians text and what it means to be a son of Abraham. Now, clearly the focus here is soteriological. It's to do with salvation primarily, not ethnicity. Also, we know that Abraham is, in fact, the father of both Jews and Gentiles in, in an ethnic race, so Isaac and Ishmael. So to see this being applied is not really that surprising. Now, to be a son of Abraham does not make one a Jew, and I do not believe it makes one a spiritual Jew. It does not say that Gentile believers are sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would be different. It just says sons of Abraham, which is not to say they are spiritual or renewed Israel. To start applying that language based on being called the sons of Abraham is taking it a step too far. Now, the fact that the true seed of Abraham, in one sense, includes both Jews and Gentiles, does not have to rule out a continuing distinction for Israel in the New Testament. 
It's that conclusion that, that's always just added on. It's never proved. Now, nor should the calling of Gentiles as the seed of Abraham be construed as the formation of a new spiritual Israel that supersedes the Old Testament Israel. There's just no scriptural warrant from Galatians chapters 2 to 4 for taking it that far. Yes, children of Abraham by faith. Jews and Gentiles, but not spiritual Jews, or, or it, it never, it just never describes us in that way in the Galatians text. Ephesians 2, chapters 11 to 22. Now, as Gentiles, um, we are considered to be made near and joined to the Commonwealth of Israel. That is absolutely true. Believing Gentiles are now Israelites is how supersessionists argue and how they interpret that. That's what they will say. Because it says we're joined to the Commonwealth of Israel, it, it gives them warrant, apparently, for now saying that believing Gentiles can now be referred to as Israelites, and they build this whole sort of spiritual new Israel from that teaching. However, the text doesn't actually use the language of Israel and it, it says we're made near and it says we're no longer excluded but this does not demand that we actually assume the identity again that's reading too much into what the text actually says so what is Paul actually getting at here in, in Ephesians and also I believe with this Galatians text he's talking obviously about the formation of the one new man the church which consists of both Jew and Gentile Gentiles now share in the spiritual blessings of the Jewish covenants and promises. This is what it's getting at. Gentiles as Gentiles can now share in the spiritual blessings of the Jewish covenants and promises. Now this is the key to Pauline theology here. It's not Gentile incorporation into Israel, but a new sharing with Israel in Israel's prior covenants and promises. Now to sum this up, in the realm of salvation blessings and status before God, Gentiles are equal with believing Jews. However, salvific unity between Jews and Gentiles does not erase ethnic or functional distinctions between the two groups, and that's what we need to understand here. You see, because Paul continues to speak of Jews and Gentiles as distinct ethnic groups in his letters. Throughout Romans and Corinthians, he does this a lot. Now, for Tom Wright, the unity of the family of Abraham, in Paul's thought, requires a, u a uniformity, a homogeneity, with no continuing significance for Jews as such in the plan of God. And I believe he's taking these verses and, and going too far with them. And it's only because he's coming to the text with this supersessionist systematic that he interprets them in such a way. Now, he goes on in his answer. He says, Paul is quite clear about this, that there's no continuing purpose, That, like he said before. It all comes to a head, he says, in Romans 9 to 11. There is so much misinformation. The myth has got out there that Romans 11 prophesies the return of the Jews. It doesn't say anything about that at all. So this is Tom speaking here. Tom Wright says, Romans 11 does not prophesy the return of the Jews. It doesn't say anything about that at all. I have to admit, this is, I believe was quite a claim, and I actually believe it's one that is not supported by text or by the history of interpretation throughout ecclesiastical history. Only when viewed through a supersessionist systematic will you come to this conclusion. Let's read the verses really that are in question here and then let's unpack them a little bit because I believe we see a major theological error in, in the supersessionist understanding here. It's Romans 11 verses 25 to 27 that are the area he's focusing on here. It says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Romans 11:25-27. It's the phrase there in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. This is really the eye of the storm in the interpretive wars surrounding Romans 11. Several possible interpretations have been offered by theologians. Now some of them see Israel here as pertaining to the elect, the one people of God comprising both believing Jews and Gentiles, which is a supersessionist position. Now I would say that this position seems doubtful given that Paul has used the term consistently ten times throughout Romans 9-11. to Whenever he uses Israel he is referring to ethnic Israel, but that's what some people claim. Others have claimed that all Israel is to be understood as a reference to all Jews throughout history. Now again, I find this position doubtful. It raises a, a sort of universalist soteriological problem that, that doesn't really fit the context of the discussion here, so I rule it out on those grounds. Now still others simply see this as a reference to the elect within Israel who are now part of the church, and that's quite a popular view. Tom Wright's view he tries very hard to argue um, through multiple pages in his works that the Israel, which is afflicted with the hardening in verse 25, is ethnic Israel. But then in verse 26, when it says all Israel will be saved, that is now referring to this enlarged, homogenous entity known as the church. Now, to, to suddenly switch from one use of Israel to the next use of Israel within one verse with no context just seems extremely confusing and I believe the arguments offered in support of this are, are, are unpersuasive. You see, to say that all Israel will be saved, if all Israel here is, is referring to this enlarged homogenous spiritual entity known as the church or the Jesus people as Tom puts it, surely they're already saved. So it, it's a bit of a tautology, it's, it's redundant to say that all Israel will be saved if all Israel is interpreted as already being the redeemed people of God. You see what I'm getting at there, it just doesn't work. To interpret all Israel in verse 26 as a reference to the ethnic nation of Israel seems the most straightforward understanding and fits the context best. Now to understand the words will be saved as a reference to the national salvation of Israel, again, is the most straightforward reading of the text. And this is not something that's just out of the blue. The national regeneration and eschatological salvation of Israel is one of the most frequently recorded hopes of the prophets. Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 31, Micah 4, and many other scriptures prophesy this event. Now, however, let's, let's take it a step further. We're not just talking about the national salvation of Israel. Most people, even supersessionists, will have their way of saying that Jews, Jews will be saved in the, end, in the end times, so to speak. What we are arguing here is not just the national salvation, it is also the national restoration of Israel to their land. And that's the issue there, because if that's still to happen, then surely all the land promises have not been universalised and there is still one specific patch of land where a lot of stuff will happen, which goes against the thrust of everything Tom Wright has been arguing for here. So does this verse say that in a Romans 11.26? Not just that Jews will be saved, but that they will be restored to their land. Now Tom Wright says emphatically no, it does not say that. And I would say that emphatically yes, I believe it does say that, but not in a very straightforward manner, you have to understand the flow of Paul's argument. So let's look at what he does here. He quotes, all Israel will be saved. 
and immediately after that statement, look, he quotes two Old Testament passages. He first quotes a verse from Isaiah 59 verse 20 that says this, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. That's Isaiah 59 verse 20 to 21 that Paul quotes in context in Romans 11. Now the context of Isaiah passage is crucial to understanding this. Isaiah 59 is an eschatological chapter that deals with the second coming of Christ in judgment at the end of the age, to, you know, where he comes to repay those whose deeds are wicked. And now this same chapter describes Jesus, one, as a redeemer. And where does it say? It says he will come to Zion. Now Zion is a location in this context and remove the sins of Israel. That is an ethnic statement. So you have both a location and an ethnicity in this quote here. And it is also one of the passages that speaks of the new covenant. This promise of the Spirit being poured upon them is a new covenant promise. Uh, there is a few passages in the Old Testament that speak of the, the new covenant and we'll look at them. So what Paul is doing here is he links this eschatological salvation of Israel to the new covenant specifically. And this is supported by the second Old Testament quote that Paul gives in Romans 11, which is from Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34. And again, here he explicitly ties the salvation of Israel to the new covenant. Uh, let me just read this verse for you. He says, verse, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Famous verse on the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Interestingly, there is one more major passage that deals with this event, this, this aspect of the new covenant and the salvation of Israel in the Old Testament. And let's look at it because it's key. Ezekiel 37, 12 to 14. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And then verses 26 to 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And they will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37 are the passages that explain the new covenant in the Old Testament. And within these passages, we have not only the blessing of the coming of the Spirit and salvation, salvation blessing and the, the end times salvation of the Jewish people, we also have this coinciding with their restoration to the land that we've just read in Ezekiel 37. And that is not the Old Testament covenant, that is not the Mosaic, that is not the Abrahamic, that is attached here to the New Covenant. 
and it is the new covenant that Gentiles share in those spiritual blessings, but we do not take them over and we do not erase the physical blessings that are still um, given to the Jewish people here. And I believe Paul in Romans 11 is making that absolutely clear because when he says all Israel will be saved, he then quotes these verses relating to the new covenant. So the land and the salvation are um, attached to the new covenant here. And we need to understand that. You see, most theologians today would not deny the new covenant awaits its final uh, consummation with the coming of Christ. But Paul has now explained that part of this consummation, the fullness of the new covenant, will involve the national salvation of Israel and restoration of Israel to the land. So I believe that Romans 11 does emphatically teach this truth. But let's move on to the next question because we're, we've been going a while now. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of information to take in, so we will be finished briefly. There's just a few more statements I want to address. Justin Briley then says, he says this question, Many people believe that Paul believed there would be an incoming of the Jews to Christianity. Well, that's still to come, still something that God is going to do with the Jews. So uh, we've really covered th that statement there in, in, the co in the content above. But then Tom Wright says this, he says, Romans 11, he says, Paul is very careful not to tie God's hands. And he's actually addressing Gentile Christians in Rome who, who seem to have this attitude now that, that the Jews are done with. Thank goodness we got rid of them. We never liked them. Uh, and Paul is saying, absolutely not. Watch out if you talk like that. So Tom's basically answer here is that Paul is writing to combat any superiority that the Gentile Roman Christians might have over the Jews that may have crept into their thinking. And it's good that he's addressing that. That is true in, in many ways. However, I do find it a little odd. On the one sense, I'm glad he recognises this, but it's also, I find it a little uh, paradoxical that his own views of supersessionism seem to give them warrant for thinking like that because they end up in the same theological destination that they are in fact done with in the sense that their their promises and their mission has been fulfilled now in jesus christ so you know they might not be an overt we don't like them attitude again this we've got this issue that the destination is still the same tom wright goes on and he says this quote he doesn't have a particular timetable Paul writing, so God writing in, in Romans, doesn't have a particular timetable. He's basically just saying to anti-Jewish Christians in Rome, watch out because God made promises to the people of Israel. And I would say that God did make promises. In Romans 9.4, it, it talks about the promises still being belonging to Israel in a continual present tense. But it's this issue of timetable that I want to have a look at. He says he doesn't have a particular timetable. However, there is a timetable in scripture. True, we don't want to fall into the error of being overly dogmatic on our interpretations, and I believe Tom may be reacting to some of these sort of very detailed and dogmatic prophecy charts that we find in futurist literature, but let's just simplify a little bit. Clearly, in the context of Romans 11, there is an easily discernible sequence of events. In verse 25, we have the hardening that comes upon Israel. It then says, until... Now that, way, that word there, until, clearly implies a time, and this would be something that would be on a timetable. It doesn't just give us an until, but it says until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So you have another event and a time. So you have the first event, the hardening of Israel, until a time period, the fullness of Gentiles, the second event, has come in another time period, and then follows the national salvation and restoration of Israel. 
So there is very clearly a timetable laid out in those few verses. And there are quite a few of these until passages that have chronological implications in Scripture. Let me give you a couple of them. Matthew 23:39. I will tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke 21:24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So th these are clearly chronological statements that do have a sort of timetable element to them. Now, we might not be able to fit them exactly, but in Romans 11, I believe they're given quite, quite a, a discernible sequence, like I said. So um, why we would use them any differently in Romans 11 uh, is just never answered. And Tom's statement there, again, I believe, is just reading too much into his own view into the text. He goes on, though, and he says this, quote, You cannot scoop up Romans 11 and say Paul is predicting some future event. Now, well, hopefully I've just answered that. It seems to flow very naturally out of Romans 11 that Paul is, in fact, speaking of a future event, the, the consummation of the new covenant, in fact. And Tom's final comment, um, he says, Jesus doesn't want us to be thinking about timetables. He wants us to be thinking about faithfulness. To be gracious here towards Tom, I really think he's just trying to end with a point of application, and I, and I would fully agree with his point of application here in the sense that faithfulness is obviously the most important quality of a disciple. It doesn't matter if you, <laughs> you know the timetables, if you're not faithful in living, it, it's useless to you. So I agree with that. My problem with it is I'm not entirely sure it's accurate to juxtapose an understanding of prophetic events with being faithful because i believe it was actually jesus who tells us to be looking for the signs matthew 16 3 where he remember he, he chastises the disciples he says you know how to interpret the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times run chronicles 12 men who understood the times men from the tribe of issachar who understood the times with knowledge of what israel should do Throughout the New Testament, we're often given exhortations to watch, to wait, to know, to understand. These all sort of imply a bit of timetable thinking as we wait for the coming of Messiah. All of these things, again, is just the difference between holding to a supersessionist hermeneutic and a non-supersessionist hermeneutic. And that's really the last point that we want to address on the Ask N.T. Wright anything podcast i understand there's been some real deep stuff here that we've looked into i hope it will give you food for thought that you'll go away and you'll search these things out and you realize that it's much more complex than tom is saying and there are actually some areas i believe in in his exegetical methodology there let me finish this section just by reading to you a bit of the scripture that ends from jeremiah 31 the passage that deals with the new covenant he ends that verse by saying this thus says the lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar the lord of hosts is his name and if this fixed order departs from me declares the lord then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for what they have done, declares the Lord. I find this passage fascinating. Just after he's gone through the new covenant where all our spiritual blessings are found, he makes this definite affirmation that the nation of Israel will never cease to be. And we need to incorporate that into our New Testament theology.
I've enjoyed doing this podcast with you. I'm always interested in any feedback or further questions that you may have. Please go to the website theologyandapologetics.com and you can use the contact form, submit questions there. You can look at the calendar for upcoming speaking events. We have quite a lot of events coming up. And if you'd like, obviously, to request a speaking event, please use the contact form there. I just ask if you could help me and share the podcast to help us engage with as many people as possible. Follow us on our social media accounts. They're all linked on the website there. And um, just enjoy the content and, and hope it's a blessing to you. Continue to lift up the ministry in prayer. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.